So welcome everybody to the CMS Book Club. My name is Roxanne Gardner, and I'm the Senior Director of Clinical Programs and Director of our Simulation Fellowship and International Scholars Program. Janice Palaganis, who is the champion of the CMS Book Club, kindly invited me to pick my book and to facilitate the discussion. And that I welcome great. all your help. I welcome all your help. And I have several members of our um, our book club ship here, Kate Morse. Hello. Laura Rock. Hello. Nacho Del Moral. Hola. And last but not least, okay. Janice. Hi, everyone. Janice kindly allowed me to pick the book, The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. And I picked this book for a number of different reasons. One, the topic of psychological safety and how does one go about understanding what it is and creating it in your organization and supporting it in a proactive fashion, uh, near and dear topic to me. Number two, Amy Edmondson is someone who I followed for many years and in the teamwork arena, I appreciated her thoughts, her insights, her research. and. Also, I happened to hear a lecture that she gave at the Harvard Medical School about psychological safety. So that, plus this book coming out, really provided a really great synergy in what I'd like to talk about. And I think from my perspective, uh, psychological safety factors greatly in our clinical work and very importantly, integrally in our simulation work. So I wanted to start out with the definition of psychological safety as she defines it which is uh, a climate in which people are comfortable expressing and being themselves. And more specifically, when people have psychological safety at work, they feel comfortable sharing concerns and mistakes without fear or embarrassment or retribution. They're confident they can speak up and won't be humiliated, ignored, or blamed. And they know they can ask questions when they are unsure about something. And they tend to trust and respect their colleagues when there is such a psychological safety in the environment. In light of that definition and what Amy goes on to define what is not psychological safety, it's not about being nice. It's not about one's personality. It's not a sort of a substitute word for trust or a word that encompasses the concept of lower performance standards. I know I've had some situations in my personal life and clinical life and simulation life where I've not felt psychologically safe. I'm guessing all of you have too. And I'm wondering what you think about her definition and how does it resonate for you in your personal life or clinical life or whatever capacity? So what I really find interesting about the concept is that it's a personal belief. It's not something that I, as let's say an instructor, can tell people, oh, you can feel safe here. That's not work. So I like from the from the concept, the idea of it's an internal belief and feeling. I think that her the de definition and her description really resonates so just so clearly what I think we've been practicing at CMS and how we've taken a lot of these same concepts and tried to apply them in specific settings, like not only the psychological safety, we need to have an effective debriefing of a difficult situation, but even the psychological safety that we need in order to bring our best self to our work, to hear mm -hmm. challenging feedback from one of uh, our colleagues, 
what is it about the way we communicate that makes me feel incredibly challenged to do my best work? And at the same time, a really deep inner sense of confidence and support that the people that are challenging me to do my best work also have my back and think highly of me. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation and that she got this book out. And I still think it's so hard to, to create that atmosphere. Yeah. And, and part of what, what I struggled with, she addressed the topic of how do, you, how do you do psychological safety if you're at the bottom of the totem pole? Mm-hmm. Like how do you how do you psychological safety up? And you know, one concept which I think was similar to some of what I've read from Diana McLean Smith, I think in the Elephant in the Room, you know, if you just kind of label someone as a jerk that you can't possibly make any headway with them, you're giving that a lot of power. So in order to sort of give that less power, you just have to assume that by being your best self, you can change the relationship and then you can change the climate of where you work, even if that person is still a jerk. I felt like some of what she recommended is just not realistic. Like by when she says, you know, you should just ask really good questions and you should put yourself out there and say, how do I improve? And can I have better, can I have really clear feedback? I want to do my best. And I'm thinking of situations that I've been in at work at my hospital where I did not have psychological safety. And I felt like I can't even imagine saying that to this particular person. Mm-hmm. Like I don't feel comfortable saying, excuse me, can I talk to you for five minutes? Even mm-hmm. <laughs> like even that would be hard. So then to say, I really want to do my best work and I need your feedback for me to do that. You know, can you help me out? I, I don't think, I think you need some psychological safety in order to do that. And so it's hard for me that that's part of her recipe for creating it. I think for me that that speaks to the challenge of how best to get to that point within your organization or within your work group. I know for me, when I went to hear Amy's lecture, I continued to be involved in another part of my life in a very difficult situation where a number of us don't feel psychologically safe. And here I am, I'm a simulation-based educator. I'm a number of decades into my career. I am very confident in many regards and the things that I'm capable of, of doing clinically. And yet I don't feel that I can go against the hierarchy and go psychological safety up, in other words. So I, I hear what you're saying. And then I think that's just, mm-hmm. that just shows you it's, it's a challenge. One of the things I did think was helpful at the end of her book was that she had these series of questions of, you know, like sort of frequently asked questions. And I think one of the questions is, well, you know, how, if I'm the lowest person on the totem pole, how do I create psychological safety? You do what you can to emanate an atmosphere or create a climate around you where people feel comfortable talking to you with you. you. Yeah. And so, you know, leadership, I think, has a very important role in establishing or helping to facilitate psychological safety or walk the talk. And yet it it still boils down to individual behaviors and in being open and respectful. And I think the culture of listening is something that Amy talked about in her book. And, you know, being able to open up and listen to the other person 
and hear them out, I think is one aspect of it. And Kate, you know, I was wondering to you at Modder, Mm -hmm. and they're working on speaking up. And Amy talks a lot about speaking up and, and the importance of speaking up and also listening. And I was wondering how this resonated for some of the work you're doing. Thanks, Roxanne. I think that there's a lot of commonalities and the idea of creating psychological safety when you're lower down on the ladder in the organization is really about speaking up. I think it's talking about an example of speaking up, but it becomes in many ways a circular argument because one of the major barriers of speaking up is a lack of psychological safety. So if I'm not feeling safe, I'm much less likely to speak up. Psychological safety is really the foundational underpinning Mm -hmm. in all of her work around speaking up and um, talking about errors. So I think her, her... you know, bringing your best self. I, I agree with all these philosophies, but it's it's not enough to say to someone, you know, you're creating a little microcosm. And I think that's what happens is there's microcultures within mm-hmm. teams. So I feel safe speaking to Laura and Janice. I don't feel sp- safe speaking to Roxanne. And so I don't have those kinds of conversations. Doesn't solve the greater problem of a lack of psychological safety. You know, it's not an easy nut to crack. And I think it requires both a willingness at the bottom of the organization to take personal risks, but invitation at the top of the organization and modeling, because without that, you're not going to be able to meet in the in the middle consistently. And I wanted to Go back to what you said, Roxanne, about how in some places you feel very confident to speak up and others, you know, you've experienced this is not working for me. I'm not feeling confident speaking up. And and I think that's surprising for all of us because we think the skill is transferable and I don't think that it is. And I Mm -hmm. think that adds to the complexity if I'm in a new environment or with a new team or I have greater uncertainty then I'm not going to feel safe and I'm much less likely to take the risk to speak up or engage. And and Amy talks about the idea of when we stop engaging because of psychological safety, then we're not bringing our best self to the workplace or home because we're not engaged at work. And then we don't want to share those kinds of things. We don't want to have a conversation when we go home that says, what did you do for at work today? Well, I didn't speak up and I don't feel very good about it. <laughs> you know, in her podcast, she talks about it and it's true. You know, you don't want to share right. sort of the worst parts of yourself. Bad so feelings. yeah, bad feelings with your, right. with your family because right. you feel like it's leaking into your personal <laughs> life where you hope to have some joy. So, I, I mean, it's a long way of saying I don't know what the, it's not an easy answer and it's not always the same answer every day and in every situation. And I like her core concepts though, of trying to get curious, wondering why that person's acting that way, giving them an opportunity, you know, all the values we espouse, I think are the, are the very best that we can continue to bring to work. The relationship that I referred to earlier where I felt like I didn't have even enough psychological safety to ask for a five minute conversation. Like I have a lot of psychological safety now with that same person. Most of the reason is because I've changed. Hmm, I don't think he's changed all that much. I think part of it's because, you know, I do communication, I do um, difficult conversations. And I, for a long time felt like, well, as a critical care doctor, that's just not sexy enough to 
you know, be my thing. And I sort of didn't feel like the confidence that I sort of have this cool niche in my world back at the hospital. And now I've really embraced it. And I feel like this is who I am. This is what I do. And I feel good about it. And so I carry myself differently. And I think I carry myself into situations and leadership conversations and, you know, bring, I'm, I'm able to speak up about ideas. And, um, and so I think, you know, maybe this person changed a little, but I think it's mostly me. And so mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, attaching this, these concepts with mindfulness, how much that can change the dynamic. Exactly just what you talked about, the, the communication, how important that is in the fact that you, you have to open yourself up to communication, to be curious. And this is a concept that we talk about all the time at Center for Medical Simulation in our simulation work, the importance of being curious and coming from a stance of respect and, and wondering what's going on. And then I think right. reframing, and maybe in some right. respects, Laura, you reframed what it was that was going was operational for you with respect to this person because of that reframing you were able to make a breakthrough i feel like in her previous work she focused she does focus on reframing and and your you know the if you think of social theory like the micro and the macro dynamics between both you know you internal and external factors i think this was more of a book around like why to have a fearless organization, the the, yeah. the research leading up to it. And then she does go into like tips as an individual to be that leader to create change, but she doesn't really talk about reframing and doing this in mm -hmm. insightful like reflection mindfulness. She doesn't talk about no, that. I think no. she does that in her previous work. So one thing that I thought was was really interesting in the just going back to your question about what we think about the definition, Roxanne, that kind mm -hmm. of confused me is, you know, in the beginning, she like outlines this definition of psychological safety. And then as I read like every chapter, I thought, okay, that definition was clearly missing this. Like, I, I'm not sure she has like a, a tight definition of, of what she's trying to say, because I felt like the whole book was a definition of psychological safety. And one of the things that I found appreciative that I didn't appreciate in her previous work, maybe because maybe I didn't pick up on it, or maybe it wasn't mentioned. She talked a lot about Ray Dalio and, and what he does in his organization. And what I loved was, I think she was talking more about the culture of a fearless organization. And, and what I liked was that we should feel obligated to be candid. And that to me was a really nice reframe of how to create a fearless organization is to change the mindset of we're obligated. If we've got a critical judgment about something as employees of that organization, we're obligated to share that, which is just a really nice way to do that, no matter what, where you are in the hierarchy. Yeah. And I think the devil's in the details because she talks a mm -hmm. lot about candor being important in establishing, you know, psychological safety and, and operationally having these conversations with each other. And I think that can be really challenging because if you do have, you're at odds with another individual on your team, it can be a dance, I think, that you feel, if, especially if you're not safe to speak up that, or that they're going to receive it well, or you have to figure out a way to be, to be honest and truthful, but not hurtful. To, to be able to open up that discussion 
and explore, you know, what's at the bottom of that. The one thing she did do, Laura, she gave these like expressions of vulnerability. And I wish she spent more time discussing why it's important to be vulnerable. But she gives expressions of vulnerability as as tips and just for our listeners, things that you can use that seem to create psychological safety, such as, I don't know, I need help, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, and I added one, I'm trying my best. So I think- That sounds like, um, sorry to interrupt you, like the 10, the ten most common things that women say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. That's probably me. I could be wrong. I'm trying my best. I'm not sure, but it's it's also it's also a tenant in Louise Penny's uh, detective story. (laughs) And then she gives words of interest, like "What can I do to help? What are you up against? What are your concerns?" So I think she touched on these two things as tips, but didn't really go into why. Why? What role vulnerability plays in psychological safety and curiosity, which mm-hmm. I think is what you're talking about, Laura. It's interesting because I think in, she talks about ways a manager could promote psychological safety, but I think she doesn't really get into the often poor insight that a manager might have on as to whether they've created it or not. She doesn't say when you're meeting with someone who works for you. You should be thinking to yourself, does this person feel like they could be, do I think this person seems like they could be honest with me? Do I think this person feels valued by me? Like, how am I going to know? What should I ask to know if they feel valued by me and whether they feel respected by me or not? Because I think a lot of leaders don't know and they don't know how to even gauge whether someone who works for them has enough psychological safety to say to to speak their mind. She does give survey measures of what they ask to assess for psychological safety. And then, you know, there are survey items, for example, in this unit, it is easy to speak up about what is on your mind. So I don't know if that would help looking at the opinion. Nacho, how do you know? You need to listen carefully what people say and what they say through their words, they link if they feel safe or not. So when I only listen good things, mm, I suspect here is not the bulk, the heart of the situation. But when I listen to difficulties, feelings, challenges that they share with me, I think, wow, that's great. Here there is an opportunity to go deeper and embrace So the psychological safety comes to life when people share their vulnerability. So that's where I feel this person trusts our relationship. You have a lot of people who report to you. So and and who report to people who report to you. So do you keep a sort of mental note or even a physical Mm -hmm. note of has this person brought up? concerns or vulnerabilities to me um how do you keep track of that so i think there are two important things that are happening nowadays in organizations and this book is part of that is we are more and more aware of how important psychological safety is for performance of the teams that's something really it's 
almost new. We didn't know before. It's part of the research in healthcare and other organizations. And with, it's what Amy is bringing. And she reports like a leadership toolkit. So what should we do? And one of the things we need to do is set the stage. It's critical. I think that's, that's a good uh, tip. And so setting the stage helps. And then in that context, when people share their vulnerabilities or complaints, I think part of the what she said also, which is the, I think it's inviting, participating, and responding productively, I think, and responding others is, okay, I hear you saying that, blah, blah, blah. So let's follow this up. Let's work together on this. Because if you feel that, that's important to me. So that's the kind of toolkit, Roxanne, that she shares. I completely agree with you. And um, the, the other thing that she talks about is the role of failure. I think there are some really interesting examples of organizations in which they've allowed or how they've, uh, their approach to failure in examples of uh, organizations who have allowed or embraced failure and acted quickly to either kill the project because it wasn't really going to deliver the outcomes based on these estimates uh, of how the product was going so far, or going ahead with the project because it looked like things were going in the right directions, but someone took a risk in thinking a little bit differently. And that for me resonated because, you know, Janice and I just went through a two year, maybe almost three year now <laughs> project with the Macy Foundation and trying to create a, a virtual campus community of practice. And, and in many, I think it was a success, but someone on our team called it a failure. And I was so shocked. Um, and I have to <laughs> I have to explore that further with that particular person because I really would like their feedback about what their perspective was. Anyways, in the process of the of, of establishing the different modules that were created as part of the virtual campus, we realized some of them just weren't going to work in the long run. And in discussions with leadership team and various sub teams, mm -hmm. we we decided not to continue to press forward because it was going to get us nowhere. And that was that was hard to receive as an individual that was involved in creation or or production mm -hmm. or that sort of thing. But on the other hand, it was liberating because we tried this experiment and we realized it's not going. This particular aspect of it was not going to work, but other aspects of it did work. So for me, I thought that it was a success overall. Well, she talks about intelligent failures, and and I think you know, especially with James's guidance. Yeah, I thought a lot of the failures were, we have to just stop this because it's a lot of resources. We got to move on to something else and, and how we should celebrate some intelligent failures because some of the failures that we had during that grant work led to even better work, which mm -hmm. I thought we have multiple products come out of it that are a result of the failures. I mean, not to say that there weren't failures because there were definitely unintelligent <laughs> failures too. I think but rocks that mm -hmm. so what i i think the beauty of your interaction is, is that someone in your team was able and felt safe 
to speak up and share with you her or his point of view. Mm-hmm. So that psychological, so that person felt that psychological safety. And it depends on the way you or I, in my case, react that we can nurture that context or that environment. Or if I feel defensive, that person won't share with me her or his feeling next time. So I understand the impact on you. And it's critical the way we react when we get this feedback. So I think Nacho and and Roxanne, you're really describing the import of leadership behavior and modeling, not only the uh, initiating, inviting, modeling, but then responding when Mm -hmm. someone does take a risk and you don't, because you are then in that vulnerable position versus typically the other way around the when the person, person who reports right. to you is in the vulnerable right. position. But now you're in that vulnerable position and how you, those small responses, and I don't mean small in a in a bad way, but like your nonverbals or your, like your initial eh, uh, responses are the things that I think I remember very clearly when I've had those kinds of conversations with people, mm-hmm. like that's what, because I think those are the true responses when people are first like, yeah, no, I don't agree with it. <laughs> and, then they, and then you do right. the politically correct <laughs> thing and you say, oh, well, that's really interesting. But your first response is that's crap. I don't agree with that. Um, so I think that those like our genuine, your leadership, genuineness and vulnerability, even to share, wow, my first response to that is, Wow, we all this hard work, but I, but now you know, and once I get through that little snit, then I really do want to hear what you have to say because I think it's so important. But I, I think that's where, that's where the modeling, it's sort of like where, where the rubber hits the road. That's where it gets hard. I think for us, it really is captured in the basic assumption. Mm-hmm. She doesn't, she doesn't use that term, but she does describe yeah, when yeah. you know, for example, having a manager who you think poorly of frame shifting from this is malicious to this is ineffective, which is really different. Like you could think great guy, ineffective management move versus terrible person, terrible decision. And I think a lot of that high regard, um, high expectations is captured in our, in the, the concept of the basic assumption. And maybe that's something that you know, if we have to think about, well, if we want to promote the concept of psychological safety, and I'm saying, you know, it takes years to really have that in a community of practice like we have, how do we disseminate that? How do we, what is the easier recipe? And I think part of it needs to be a basic assumption about your coworkers, about your students, about your colleagues, about everyone you have to interact with. And that's hard to do. It is hard hard to to do. And in my prior example, where I highlighted the fact that in one aspect of my life, I'm working in a situation where I feel very psychologically unsafe, yet in in another major part of my life, I'm very psychologically safe. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but I would say, you know, how do I, how do I get that feeling over into this? How do I operationalize it into the area where it needs to be in its it's bigger than me. Yeah. I think you're saying it, Roxanne. And I think that's the addition to the basic assumption that was kind of missing from, from some of the 
chapters here is, you know, she does talk about everybody having a common passion for improvement. If your culture is that way, like, I'm so glad you're bringing up, you know, our work together, because if we weren't psychologically safe, so we have a report that's coming out, uh, hopefully soon, that basically details all of the lessons learned. So all of the mistakes that we made (laughs) during the last three years. And the fact that as an organization, we're willing to put that out there so that other people can learn from it with the spirit of failure is good so that everyone else can improve. I think that's that's one way to create psychological safety is celebrating failure in, you know, whatever way you can as a person, as a group, in your department, and holding the basic. I think that also creates the basic assumption. I think that's part of what Amy says is setting the stage. So we are running this project within us, between the team, in the team, failures will be a way to learn together, not a something to blame. And so being explicit, I think it's very powerful since the beginning is what she said as the setting the stage for psychological safety. Which I think it's something that we as a community do every time we meet. Well, I just wonder, like, Laura, you brought up the question of, as an individual, how much can you change? And and I'm actually going to ask Kate, because I think you do a lot of this with our affiliations group. I feel like a lot of it is barriers around psychological safety is culture change. But to be able to be an individual doing culture change, you need psychological safety. So it's like the psychological safety gets in your way, and it's what you need to be able to do what you need to do. So... Is it, you know, just going back to Laura's whole thing of, mm-hmm. can you actually apply all of this? Like, it's very difficult. And how can our listeners apply it? I guess that's what I'd like to draw out. I think it goes back to the original finding, creating those little micro cultures. So, you know, maybe there's nobody else. And then you find a like-minded individual and then you find a third like-minded individual. And then people are seeing how you talk to one another and, and how you're working together. And this seems interesting to them. So they test you on, you know, they test out the behavior. They see if this is something they want. I, I think a lot of times it's those small continued little micro changes that, start the ball rolling. And then there is at some point a tipping point in a organizational culture. I mean, my expertise is in healthcare and I'm guessing it's somewhat similar outside of that, where the preponderance of people are on that path. And it's the rest of the, you know, the few that are left out either make a conscious choice to change or that they don't want to be involved in that type of culture and they make a conscious choice to leave the organization. And Amy talks about that in that if you are in a situation where there is no opportunity for development of psychological safety that you, and you've exhausted all the appropriate and you've tried all the appropriate things, then you're perhaps she suggests that you know your next your next opportunity is to buff up your CV and look for another opportunity to work. Yeah, (laughs) a little brutal, but on the other hand, you know, it's a realistic statement. You know, I think one thing that is very like connecting for me as we're having this conversation comes from the book. Thanks for the feedback. Your perception of your own psychological safety 
is some feedback on the culture, on the other person, and also on yourself. When you don't feel psychologically safe, if I feel unsafe, like I said earlier, if you put this all on the other person, you're just relinquishing a lot of power and, right. and really minimal opportunity for improvement. But if I say to myself, what am I bringing to this relationship? What am I doing that makes me feel unsafe here? Like, what mm -hmm. can I do? Forgetting about them. Maybe I can have conversations and we can have workshops or whatever, and they'll change too. But what can I do now mm -hmm. that I'm bringing to this relationship, to this situation that you know, even if it doesn't work, at least I will feel the confidence that I've tried and that I'm modeling something that I think everyone can benefit from. And at the end of the day, the only person you can truly change is, is yourself. Yeah. Right. So I love that, Laura. I think that's that's such a great um, question that we we all should be asking ourselves. Right. That's part that of the, the podcast. She says something about that in the podcast on the podcast. So what can I do? And I think that part of what I can do is the basic assumption, as you mentioned, Janice, is even though that person is making me feel awkward and safe, he has a reason that I need, I need to discover. And then it's where curiosity and respect takes part. It helps a lot when you feel some psychological safety, at least in one aspect of your life or work. I think it helps you carry mm -hmm. that over. To another place. And I think having someone that encourages you to move forward to apply these concepts that we now have in our DNA, I think it's important. Being alone, it's difficult to create that in a context which is hostile. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things too that Amy goes into the the downsides of not being psychologically safe is that if you're afraid to speak up. We all worry about fear of not reporting an error, but it's also the fear of not talking about a good idea or, you know, an interesting way of doing something new and how, how that can be detrimental to an organization as well. So fear is, is really quite a motivator. In my own experience with the area of my life where there's a psychological unsafety, I had the experience of one of my colleagues there feeling so unsafe that they left and went to a new position. I was really surprised when they decided to leave. I didn't realize they were. And it's, it's helped me to be more open and mindful towards colleagues that I still work with who have elected to stay to try to create more safety in them to share with me. So there are things as individuals we can do, even in areas where we might not feel organizationally, it's psychologically safe. But again, going back to Kate's concept of the microcosms of creating clusters of safety that maybe over time will coalesce into the tipping point or critical mass where positive change can happen. If we want to introduce the concept and some of the why this is so important to colleagues, would you recommend this as a first book on psychological safety or is there a sort of shorter article by Amy Edmondson that you think captures the essence of what she's saying? Or how would you try to start promoting this concept among novice faculty? I think if you're trying to create buy-in, probably the most powerful thing out there is, is the findings from the Google project. What 
what is it called again? Aristotle. Oh, I have that Aristotle. The perfect team or something like that. Yeah, and it, they, they outlined five factors for yeah. um, team performance. And the very first factor, which they consider the underpinning of all of the other four factors is psychological safety. And they mentioned Amy Edmondson. She talks, I think her entire chapter two is about that. And she also has an article that she wrote in HBR, Harvard Business Review, that speaks to, it. it's certainly not this extensive as her book, but I think it's a good first start because the book is a lot to chew. And yeah. if you're trying to make a, a change in a larger context, more than just, say, four or five people, I think assigning everybody to read this book might be a bit much. Are there any other aspects of the book that that we haven't yet had a chance to talk about. I think it was Laura early on, you were talking about advising us to ask a good question. And it was funny, she does talk about proactive inquiry and what are the attributes mm -hmm. of a good question or a powerful question. And I immediately felt intimidated, like, well, I can't ask a powerful question. Like, how am I gonna come up with a powerful question? It just, <laughs> it just felt so like, unachievable. So I had to laugh at my own self, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm like undermining my own self. The, just the concept of, you know, asking a powerful question. I'm, I'm just wondering how that, that resonated with all of you as you were reading that. Yeah, I agree. I felt like her example would require a baseline level of psychological safety, which is sort of the chicken egg problem. Like <laughs> if you don't have it, then it's really hard to speak up. And it made me feel like she can't relate to being psychologically unsafe because she speaks with a lot of power and a lot of confidence. And I'm sure she, everyone can relate to being psychologically unsafe at some point, but I feel like her examples of what to do to get there seemed like they would require too much as a first step. Yeah. If you get a chance to read um, through her book on page 171, she has attributes of a powerful question. And a lot of it uh, resonates with some of the things we talk about in, in our instructor courses. Uh, questions generate curiosity in the listener, stimulate reflective conversation. We're all about that. Something that surfaces underlying assumptions, generates energy and forward movements, channels attention, uh, stays with the participant and touches on a deep meaning. It made me feel a little bit better about, okay. I, th I think I really can t do this. It's it's not out of the realm of things that I'm I'm being challenged to do as a as an instructor in simulation. What a powerful question, Roxanne. <laughs> <laughs> Sup? So funny. <laughs> no, I really I think Nacho hit on it, which is the listening. And you know, we do teach listening to understand and. I feel like if you just listen to whomever you're speaking with, you'll be able to do this, like ask a powerful question if you're thinking about them and not yourself. Yeah, yes, I agree with all those things. And I'm just listening to, you know, the conversation here and, and the milieu that we swim in in a regular day. We are very advanced and in many ways different from a lot of organizations. So I think the reach for a typical organization or the atypical employee that's in an organization that has never heard the idea of psych safety is a big reach. You know, so if, if rocks you who's experienced and lives in an organization that breathes and, and works hard every day to do this, the 
to ask a entry-level person in an organization to take that risk, I, I think is a bridge too far. Like there has to be something that connects in between that. I think we at times find it difficult and yet we're in the a good a really good environment. So how do we help others get there? I think that's the like the, these are great conversations at a leadership level but for entry level or middle level people in an organization that is starting this journey. It's a different conversation. Like they don't understand they they are not used right. to frame-based conversations or, right. you know, appreciative inquiry, being interested <laughs> in the other intent and impact. These are terms that don't hold meaning for them yet. So how do we engage, get them excited about this is something that is reachable. This is something that is doable, regardless of where you are. And I don't have the answer. I just think that, <laughs> you, you know, we're pretty evolved and we spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And yet, we are recognizing the challenges. Like it's not an easy thing. And I think it's okay to recognize that. And be honest with our yeah. colleagues. For novel people, so for people who are entering, reflecting on how they feel with that person in that context, that's one step forward. And then conceptualizing why I feel safe with these people, this team in this context or why I feel unsafe. That kind of simple, simple questions, I think how to, how is my performance when I feel in a safe environment? And reflecting that's, on that. I think that's the courage to move forward, to change. I don't have an answer, and I think it's part of what our listeners can think about, how <laughs> I feel with that person or the other. Benacio, I, I think that's a fabulous way to sum up some of the simple things that we can do and advise people who are entering onto this journey of establishing psychological safety. So I want to thank all of my colleagues who are here today on the CMS Book Club talking about creating a fearless organization and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you, Rox, for choosing that great book. The CMS Book Club is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about the Center for Medical Simulation and sign up for our simulation instructor training at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.